0: David Hershkovitz and you're listening to light culture brought to you exclusively by burb where cannabis clothing and culture intersect based in Vancouver Canada burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world BC bud follow us on Instagram at shopburb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash light culture Abdullah Saeed is just beginning to flex we met when I was at paper, and he was looking to stretch as a writer, and we immediately connected over our shared appreciation of cannabis culture and history. Since then, his trajectory has taken off. From his days at Vice, where he was its main weed correspondent and launched the cannabis food show, *Banga Appetit, he's branched out. Moving his base of operations from New York to LA, he's gone Hollywood and thrown his hat into the ring. When he's not taking meetings and pitching his out-of-the-box ideas to agents and execs, he continues to work on the HBO show, High Maintenance, both as a writer and actor. His gregarious nature and sense of humor have served him well and made him one of the ones to watch in the burgeoning cannabis culture industry. Here we talk about his day's advice, how a Munchies web series became a cooking show, and how California is screwing up its cannabis game. Abdullah, one of the pleasures of running a magazine like Paper, as I did for many, many years, is having the opportunity to meet people who are working on the cutting edge, you know, doing new and incredible work. So when I met you, I don't know how many years ago, it was like five years ago, or I don't know, time flies.
1: Yeah, I think it was... 2014 or something like that. 2014? I think it was actually, or it may have been even earlier.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was somewhere between 2012 and 2014. Okay, I think.
0: good. So you're disproving this whole theory about memory and cannabis right away. Very good. <laughs> Playing into the stereotype. Really, but you were already reporting on the nascent cannabis industry at that time, right? Covering the cannabis yeah. culture, and mm-hmm. your Weedie Kit column in Vice. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. That was my first my first uh, piece of cannabis media, piece of recurring cannabis media, was the Weedikit column on Vice. And it was basically a Sunday column where I would just tell kind of foibly stories that involve weed from my life.
0: But before you landed there, here you was this immigrant kid, right, learning to navigate mm-hmm. his way through Western culture. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the making of Abdullah Saeed, Today, you're a personality, <laughs> media maker, producer, star of political road trip series, uh, Vice Does America, creator and host of the viral cannabis short form series, Smokables, writer and recurring guest star on the HBO original series, High Maintenance. So a couple of other things we'll talk about later. So how did you arrive at this point? We want to know about the journey. Yeah.
1: So basically, I was generated in 1984 by my parents who are both from Pakistan, but my father studied, he went to graduate school in the United States, in Massachusetts. So I was actually born in the U.S. while my dad was
0: at school. So you're not an immigrant, sorry.
1: Well, actually, (laughs) I mean, you know, I guess it's sort of a technicality because Mm. before I was one, my family went to Thailand and my dad had worked in Thailand before. Uh, And so despite the fact that I was born in the US, I actually grew up in Thailand until I was 13 and then came back to the US with my mom in 1997. So definitely I had the immigrant experience despite being technically born in the United States. And basically I wasn't the best kid in terms of grades. I would get into trouble and stuff like that. So I think for a long time, I didn't have any personal expectation to to do anything crazy or notable. I just thought I'd you know chug along, (laughs) you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But I always had a talent for writing, and that was something that my mom always encouraged. And I went to college for business, even though I was more interested in reading and writing and you know things like that, because I was hoping to get a job once I got out. And you know when I graduated, it was in 2007. So between that and 2008, I was looking for jobs. I was a pretty mediocre student, so it was it was hard to find a gig. And I ended up writing for a local hip hop magazine called this was Foundation.
0: In, in Philadelphia, right?
1: Yeah, this was in, in Philadelphia exactly. I went to Temple University and then got out into a rough job market. And I ended up writing freelance for this place. They gave me a few bucks to write mixtape reviews. And I showed some initiative, so they had me become the music editor. And then I got all my friends to write reviews, you know, getting people to do free work. And I got a few bucks here and there for that. It, It was fine. You know, like they would pay me a couple hundred dollars to edit the whole review section of one of the issues. And then at one point, I remember I invoiced them and I got an email back, which they had inadvertently left me on. Mm -hmm. And it was something like, Oh, we don't have any money. How are we going to pay this guy? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh shit. And actually there was some comment in there about me being a stoner too. I I forget what exactly, but he was like, how are we going to pay this pothead or something like that?
0: Oh, so you Um, already started smoking. So how, where, when, when did that happen? Do you remember? Oh
1: yeah. I, I started smoking weed when I was like 14 or 15. I've asked friends of mine like, oh, you know, like back in the day, was I an overly enthusiastic cannabis fan? And and everyone always says, yeah, I was always known as a weed guy, even in high school or you know in college. I was always very enthusiastic about weed and people always kind of knew me as a weed guy. I think like the way that I talk, people associate with being stoned, which is funny to me because this is just what my voice sounds like. This is exactly what I would sound like. And living in the East Coast in my formative years, I picked up a certain way of speaking, which people associate with st- kind of stonery, which I think is weird because I always associate with California mm-hmm. surfer vibes. But yeah, I- I've always definitely been enthusiastic about cannabis. When I got into journalism, starting at that magazine and then eventually Philadelphia Weekly and then MTV and then Vice for several years and then all those other places, I was looking around for what inspires me. I really like electronic music, so I thought, I'll write about electronic music that really inspires me. I always was looking for the thing that would make me write beautifully, because I feel like it's very inspiration-based. And it turned out to be cannabis. It turned out to be this thing that was there all along, that was right in front of me. And it still inspires me every day, I think. You know, even as, as I get older, even though I still smoke probably a lot more than the average person, I don't smoke as much as I used to or as zealously. I say that, it's like, what, it's it's two in the afternoon here, I've already smoked like four joints today. <laughs> so I don't know how true that is. But even beyond just consuming it, I'm really fascinated by the cultural dynamics, by the political dynamics, and particularly by the history of cannabis for sure.
0: Well, yes, you mentioned the East Coast, West Coast and the cultural dynamics, all these things very uh, relevant right now because you said you were in living in the East Coast, but now you live in the West Coast in yeah. L.A., right? So uh, how is it different? What have you noticed about what's going on in mm. L.A., whether it's in the cannabis culture or just observations yeah. of the kind that the average New Yorker usually goes out there? The first Mm -hmm. thing we always, oh, the weather is so great. Okay, you got the weather. Next. (laughs) What else? What else you got?
1: The main attractions for me were professional. There's two things that it seemed like natural steps for me to attempt, which is getting into scripted television and film, like writing and uh, producing and acting or whatever else. And then also the cannabis industry, the burgeoning cannabis industry that everyone talks about. Oh, it's a big green rush. On the cannabis side of things, I I don't you know, despite the culture being so much more open minded, it's really not that different anymore, I think, from New York. In a place like New York or Philly, it's pretty chill. The culture has shifted. I mean, in California, people have been relaxed about cannabis stuff for over twenty years, and that's just kind of new on the East Coast. In terms of access, of course, there's access to a lot better cannabis here. But professionally, I, I didn't end up working that much with, like, you know, cannabis world. In the film and television stuff, I'm working on a script right now that's, like, a pretty crazy thing. I think it's a it's an interesting time in Hollywood where people will be interested in the kind of crazy stories that I want to bring forward. So that's cool. I think a byproduct of coming to California, I didn't realize I would experience is that I have a moment and I have the physical and mental space to kind of care about how I feel on a daily basis. Am I healthy? Like, am I exercising enough? You know, am I eating right? Am I doing all those things? I think that's pretty stereotypical in terms of people coming out here and suddenly discovering, oh, like I can focus on myself and my, my well-being for a little bit. So I'm indulging in that. It's also very dry. People say the weather is good, but I mean, I grew up in Thailand, and it's dry as hell here. Like, I have to have a humidifier going at all times, or I start getting a headache. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, other than that, I would say that I really like living here, and that I did not particularly like my last few years in New York. I was over it.
0: Mm-hmm. Ready to move on. But you used to go up, let's say, in Humboldt, and, and part of your investigations when you were doing more research and roving around the the cannabis world before it was legal or as legal. You were familiar with that terrain, right?
1: Somewhat. Basically, I started covering cannabis stuff in 2012, and it was just a couple months before Colorado and Washington legalized cannabis for adult use, recreational cannabis. So I wasn't as much in the trenches in the illegal gray market grow days of California. I did some stuff up in Humboldt in 2013, 2014, in the Emerald Triangle, but it was very, like, it was light. I I didn't do heavy reporting, Murder Mountain-type stuff.
0: (laughs) Right, because probably heard that, you know, your governor, Newsom, is now getting military planes and activating people, soldiers to go out there to arrest the people who are still illegally growing.
1: This is totally how a drug war happens, right? So, for example, now that the government has a vested interest in legal cannabis, right, they're now going to use military might to squeeze out anybody who's seen as quote-unquote black market, despite the fact that that market has existed for over two decades and has functioned pretty well and that this new market is bullshit. So this is an interesting thing, actually. A lot of people see MedMen and they see, oh, there's a green rush, right? Well, in reality, here's what's happening in California. And it's crazy to me that when you watch the news, this is the subtext that you don't really see, is that legal cannabis is failing massively. People are not buying as much legal cannabis in the stores, in the legal licensed stores, uh, as they are buying it on the street. The black market is back. The black market for cannabis in California is back and bigger than ever. There's a couple reasons why. The state basically, in legalizing cannabis, they squeezed it too tight. They squeezed the cannabis opportunity a little bit too tight. They got a little too greedy. So what they did was they consolidated medical and recreational cannabis regulations, meaning, a person who's been buying their cannabis with a medical prescription for the last 22 years, they're being told, oh, uh, so now if you want to legally buy cannabis, the only way you can do it is to go into one of these stores and you're going to end up paying three times as much as you used to. And guess what? The weed is not as good because to get a license to legally grow in California, you don't have to have the best weed. You have to have the most money to be able to put that up and show that you can... uh, uh, you can produce if, if you have that license so in fact the best weed is not in any of the stores almost as a rule the best weed is still being grown by people uh, on the black market and it's being bought and sold there as well 80 percent of the cannabis is being s- sold to people who are regular consumers 20 percent of it is somebody who's got a jar of nugs sitting in the cabin oh i don't know how old that is maybe try smoking some of that right Essentially, they have, they've choked out the market and that 80% of weed that is bought by regular consumers is being bought on the black market because it's cheaper there and it's better there. Unwittingly, California has expanded the black market, which had been dying for years. Literally, like the cartel's reign is over. But now they actually have the opportunity to come back because the black market has returned. Isn't that fucking
0: silly, mm-hmm. David? Well, it is silly. You know, it, it's still very early. So I think ultimately the stores will prevail. The legal market will prevail uh, because it's just so convenient and just walk down the block, like to the corner store, you get something, you don't have to go through all the hassle. But obviously right now, I agree with you. They were squeezing a little too tight, creating this law enforcement problem who nobody was paying attention to formally. Oh, yeah. And now it's suddenly and become a thing.
1: believe It's no hassle to get that weed on the street. It's actually Mm -hmm. less of a hassle than going to the store right now.
0: In Canada, because it's legal nationally, recreationally, Mm -hmm. and they're being very careful with the licensing. Burb, who's the sponsor of the show, is going to have a couple of stores to start with and then expanding from beyond that. But it's a very controlled Mm -hmm. situation. So in that respect, uh, it remains to be seen. But I you know, have always been involved with the underground market and Mm -hmm. only recently had the experience of going into a store to see what that was like. And it's not, you know, it's not the same culture. It's not the same vibe of of how we're used to it prior to that, especially in New York. But I see the convenience aspect of it that could be very attractive at some point.
1: Yeah, it should be convenience-based, right? But so the thing is, how much is that worth? For example, like if I can pay $60 and get a quarter ounce of really good weed, am I gonna pay $60 for an eighth of weed that's half as good because I can get it at the store? The fact of the matter is, if you've already been doing it for years and you already have the network and you know the people, then that's more convenient than going to a store. If it's cheaper, you know, money talks.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's definitely a value. And again, I think things are evolving and it's not going to be yeah. the same as we see it today. And hopefully everyone will see that we got to all work together. There's no point like locking up people who are just doing what the next guy's doing, getting rich off of. And ultimately, it's still a great thing that it's legal today in, in some yeah. states and becoming more acceptable. You mentioned Bon Appetit. Uh, earlier, yeah. which we didn't really have a chance to talk about yet. That was a show that you developed, right? And, uh, hosted yeah. and it was nominated for a James Beard award even. And yeah, that's right. And so there was like a food show with cooking with cannabis. Is that essentially? Yeah, exactly. Was? Or it still is, right?
1: Yeah. So, so Bargain Appetit was initially a, uh, a, a munchies web series. I would be on the road, going around Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, and meeting people who are making edibles. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were like, you know, people just making them at home or renting part-time at a commercial kitchen to make their product and then distributing it at dispensaries under the local, like, medical cannabis law. And it was really fun. When Viceland started, I was doing other shows for Viceland. And then at one point, one of the development guys was like, oh, you should do... Uh, this show as the TV show and then we ended up doing that and I did 30 episodes of it and then I quit from all my projects advice to to go do other stuff the cool thing about buying Appetit is that a lot of people who watched it will tell me that this show helped me convince my parents that cannabis is okay or that they have the wrong mm-hmm. idea about cannabis and to me that's really important still a lot of people will say, oh, this is the first time that we saw cannabis treated legitimately and celebrated without it being hokey, without it being patronizing to people who are actually in the culture. And I'm glad I got to do that on television. Really honest expressions from from a subculture only happen on TV rarely. And when they do, it's very fleeting. I would say that that's what Bon Appetit was. It happened at a time When this TV network was young and they were taking risks and rolling the dice or whatever, right? And we got to make this show that was really cool in that little window of time. And then it ended. I think it's great that there is a product sitting there. It's on Hulu, 30 episodes of cannabis being being celebrated. That to me is like the most important thing about it. And, you know, I made a lot of friends in Cannabis World while doing that show, which is really special to me.
0: What about the chefs? Aren't they notorious for partying hard in every way?
1: Yeah. Chefs are definitely (laughs) intense. I think to be in a creative job that also involves so much labor and, you know, so much physical labor and being on your feet and so much regular intensity. You got to be a a wild kind of person to do that. We worked with some really awesome chefs on the show. Marcel Vineron, who's a real badass. He did the first episode. Fatima Ali, who very sadly passed away recently. She was really young, but she's such a talented chef from Pakistan. And uh, another one that comes to mind is Dookie Hong, who's a Korean chef. Another really young dude who's also immensely talented. He made, like, the best fried chicken I've ever had on the show in my life. And it was also very Los Angeles. That was a budget thing. Like We didn't have the money to fly people out. It was a low-budget show. We got to work with really cool chefs around L.A. You know, I live in L.A. now, so that's nice. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yes, take care of but yourself. Yeah. You know, everyone has an edible story, right? You know how, like, they ate too much because it wasn't working <laughs> fast enough, and before they sure. know it, you know, they're going. Were there things like that going on off camera you know, <laughs> after the show? What state of mind were people in
1: well, I'll definitely say that people got very high on the show. It was extremely rare that anybody would get too high. And like, here's the thing with that: imagine if it was an alcohol show, mm. if somebody had a, you know, <laughs> an imagine. extra high dose of alcohol, it, they'd yeah. be dead, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So that's always my thing with cannabis. The reason you can have a good time with it is you always come back from it. There's a lot of bullshit backlash science out there that they'll say, oh, cannabis uh, you know, causes psychosis or something like that. There's not a single recorded death <laughs> in the 12,000 year history of human cannabis use. There's not a single reported death, right? People worry so much about packaged edibles. Oh, it looks so much like candy. My kid's going to eat that. Where there's so many brands of, of alcohol that are packaged to look like candy that are marketed as having fruity flavors and you know, it's all super colorful. And that stuff kills scores of people on, on an annual basis, right? And people are worried about their kid eating a 10-milligram gummy bear. It's not good for a kid to eat cannabis or any kind of psychoactive drug. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to kill anybody.
0: What about high school kids like yourself who was trying it at 14? Yeah. Would you recommend well, it? No.
1: If I'm being honest, to me... High school age is a social construct of now. I was a mature person at the age of 15, and cannabis actually really helped me out. I've never been a big alcohol person. I have many, many friends who consider their consumption of alcohol a problem. I've seen it be a problem for those people. You know, there's only two substances from which the withdrawal can kill you, benzos and alcohols. I'm very, like, thankful to you regularly use a substance from which the withdrawal won't kill me. I can stop anytime, and I have and do all the time. If I'm off traveling somewhere, I just don't smoke weed for that week. In that sense, it's a pretty convenient vice mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like I-, I smoke tobacco still, not very much, but I still do smoke tobacco, and to me, that's a far worse vice. It actually makes me feel terrible, too. I'm glad that. This is the substance that gives me my kicks because sadly there's people who get their kicks from much more dangerous drugs that have much more lasting effects, you know?
0: For real. And, uh, and as I remember once, uh, you know, some years ago I was in L.A. for some project with paper and somebody had some gummies that they were passing out and go, what's that? I didn't know anything about it. And then I realized that all these people in Hollywood that didn't want to smoke because they didn't want people to smell it around them. So there were all these people who were actually on edibles, you know, throughout the day probably, and even today with the vaping, you know, that Mm -hmm. allows you to conceal that better than otherwise. So how in your experience, did you discover that... Many more people were actually involved than you knew at first. Now that you're sort of, you know, it's open and it's becoming, you're known for that, right?
1: This whole movement, this whole social change has really brought people out of the shadows. A lot more people are open about their use of cannabis and cannabis people are everywhere, right? As a journalist doing cannabis stuff, I remember the time when no one would talk to you or go on camera or no one would give you a name or whatever, to very quickly that shifting to people being like, yeah, put my picture in the article. It was kind of this cool thing where you suddenly saw an openness around cannabis. And those people were were always there. A lot of people have been doing it in secret, right? We've been inadvertently holding this really oppressive prohibition culture in place by being discreet about our cannabis use. For example, if we were all honest about our cannabis use back in the 90s if every american was like i'm going to you know be honest about my cannabis use and i'm going to vote accordingly maybe we wouldn't have the largest prison population in the world that's the thing while we everyone's been enjoying cannabis behind the scenes it's also been used as a tactic to to put people in jail to me that's the the most important aspect of this new openness or like you know coming out about it is that you know, we can objectively look at the fact that, oh, if I'm enjoying this, then why are there people in jail for this? And there's still people in jail for this. To this day, despite all the enjoyment of legal cannabis that we're seeing across the country, there's still a disproportionately large amount of Black and Hispanic men who are in in prison for trafficking or for possessing or transporting cannabis.
0: I remember at one time when we used to meet... And discuss various projects that you might work on one of the th- ideas that, that i was pitching and i think you were interested as well was to do something about the heroes the cannabis heroes people who have sacrificed their lives or devoted oh yeah their... i think i
1: wrote that article i i think i actually wrote that article for paper i think it you was... did
0: one or one or two yeah we wanted to do a whole series and now yeah. I see you're doing a a podcast as well, right? Great moments yeah. in weed history that Great
1: Moments in Weed History. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my podcast, which I do with David Biedenstock, who's a total OG in the weed journalism world. He he taught me a lot of stuff when I first got started in, in this field. In the show, he tells me a history that that he's researched and I chime in, you know, with my own knowledge base of cannabis stuff. And it's really fun. The cannabis history thing is the most interesting aspect of it to me. I'm more interested in the history of cannabis than in the science, although all those things tie together in a lot of ways, you know. I wanted to do a show that was not beholden to a major platform. I was at Vice for years doing weed stuff. He was at High Times for years doing weed stuff. Well, this is something that we got to do totally independently. This is what it sounds like when actual cannab- passionate cannabis people just make the content they want to make. Right. And I think that's who's listening to it too, which is very heartening.
0: You know, recently, because my association with Burb, I've had occasion to go out to Vancouver yeah. and sample some of the BC Bud that's it's famous oh, for. Yeah. They've also had a generation or so of gray market cafes. It was the Amsterdam oh, yeah. of North America in that respect. Yeah, big time. So they have a legacy and a history. And in your podcast, if I I think it would be a cool thing to talk about Vancouver in that respect because it's, yeah, it's overlooked absolutely. a lot of times, but it feels like there's something really unique there. And it's really created a mellow vibe in the city as well that everyone can experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is actually a really good point. I think I'm going to mention that to Bean & Stock because... It is definitely a, a very historic place. I don't think we've covered it yet, but I know there's a couple stories that we've talked about that happen out there. There's and there's a lot of change now. My friend Damian Abraham, who's the uh, he's the frontman of this band called Fucked Up, Canadian band, and you know he's taught me a lot about the Canadian cannabis culture, and it, it really is overlooked. A lot of people ignore that. I don't, I'm really fascinated by it. I'd like to spend more time in Canada. I've only taken one sort of weed trip to B.C., and, well, and, and it you was a really interesting place.
0: When the draft dodgers were leaving the United States, they went to Canada right. in many cases, and, and that's where a lot of the the you know the plants were coming from And back in those days.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that's super whole, interesting. there's like, a subculture yeah.
0: around that. Yeah, there's, like, even little towns that are still there that were settled by those people you can go visit
1: that's pretty cool right I, I would like to go visit
0: high maintenance got to talk about that one of my favorite yeah. shows oh that's you awesome. were original in the uh, the web version right the online version of that that eventually became a hbo show which is still running yeah and
1: yeah i popped in there <laughs> so you met
0: ben sinclair one of the show's creators and founders and now you're also writing With him, right, and having other projects, and you're appearing in the new series. Tell us a little bit about the show, just for the people who haven't seen it.
1: Essentially, High Maintenance is a kind of anthology show, almost, about all the various customers of a cannabis delivery guy played by my friend Ben Sinclair. I think a lot of New Yorkers feel a lot of love for the show because it... It shows almost the entire city. It's almost the only way you can look at New York is by seeing it through the eyes of many, many people, right? My character is based on my actual self, right? This is almost like an alternate life for me. If I was like a dude living in New York who drove an Uber, like this is exactly what (laughs) I would be like. Yeah. And then Ben and I are writing that, that movie I was talking about before. Well, it's a prison dance film. I guess that's all I can say
0: about it. Wow. Yeah, I got to see it. It sounds amazing. It's a weird one. High maintenance is a point of view of a a weed messenger who rides his bike around the city, Mm -hmm. mostly Brooklyn, it looks like. Yeah. Going in and out of people's homes where he gets exposed to more than he wants to see sometimes, right? From the paranoid stoner to wild lesbians to career millennials. You know, the list goes on. So as you were saying, you get to see New York from all these different points of view. Yeah. But at the same time, I'd like to hear what your thoughts on that. This is portraying a dying think... way of life when cannabis was stigmatized in yeah. Underground. I guess it's still going on, these bicycle messengers. Yeah. But I and imagine actually, less so.
1: Yeah, in this season, Ben's character, the weed delivery guy, he gets a medical marijuana card in one scene, which I thought was interesting. It is definitely changing. It's so funny to me because I get called out on the street from people who've seen Bong Appetit more in California than anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. In New York, no one no one gives a shit about me. I'm just another brown dude on the street, right? But In California, there's a lot of stoners who are like, yay, they watched that show. And invariably, they'll be like, you don't do bong Appetit anymore. What are you doing now? And I'll be like, I work on this HBO show called High Maintenance. And people out here are like, oh, I haven't even heard of that. And I'm like, That's crazy to me because it's such an institution in New York. It's such a big show there. But out here, people are more used to a different way of procuring cannabis. The culture is different.
0: You can't be a bicycle messenger in L.A., right?
1: It's just a different vibe in terms of how much cannabis people consume. For example, a lot of the customers on high maintenance are just regular people who also smoke pot. And that's the thing I like about it because... That's most. That's most of who's smoking weed—just regular ass people, you know—is what we were talking about. It helps bring them out of the shadows a little bit. But here in California, you have a lot of real enthusiasts, you know—people who fucking smoke. You feel me?
0: When I saw you out there recently, you mentioned that you were starting to do a stand-up act as well, and now I yeah. see you have this this thing called the Shit Show. Yeah, that's what, what right. What is that? What is that? What does it stand so, for?
1: Yeah, so SHIT stands for Smoke Herb, It's Trendy, but also the acronym keeps changing. Me and my buddy Josh, uh, who is a legendary sound man out here in L.A., and DJ, he and I started doing this show. I started doing stand-up comedy back in October of 2018, six, seven months ago. So I'm still pretty new to it, but I've gotten a lot of encouragement from comedians and from friends and from just people in general who have been supportive.
0: Is this stoner comedy, or is it focused on cannabis? I wouldn't really say that. We don't like the term stoner, right? It's not a good thing anyway.
1: I would say I'm a stoner. I'm a guy who gets stoned. I'm a guy who gets high a lot. But very little of what I do is stoner stuff. The movie that uh, Ben and I are writing has nothing to do with cannabis at all. And even like my stand-up, it's more about being a Muslim American. There's definitely jokes in there that are about cannabis or about using it, but I wouldn't call it stoner or humor or whatever. It just feels reductive, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Abdullah Saeed. Catching up with you is a big job. You're doing so much and in getting <laughs> involved in so many different things. Every time I turn around, there's something new.
1: Just trying to look busy, you know? You're doing a good <laughs> job, man.
0: So the <laughs> nice. shit show comedy show is at Ed El Cid in Los Angeles, right? Is that yeah, how often that's is that? Right.
1: It's the first Wednesday of every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the rest of this year 2019 uh, yeah we're gonna be at my home away from home I'll sit on sunset there's a bunch of awesome comedians and the headliner is Byron Bowers and my friend Andrew T from Yo Is This Racist
0: and uh, we can see you on Instagram and Twitter at, at I'm your kid that's right I'm everybody's kid yeah man alright good <laughs> enough thanks so much Thank you David, uh, always a pleasure man Yeah, take care Thank you You've been listening to Light Culture Brought to you exclusively by Burb Where cannabis clothing and culture intersect Please follow us on Instagram At ShopBurb And subscribe to this podcast At shopburb.com forward slash Light Culture As well as iTunes and all the regular Distribution platforms